Hello everyone and welcome to Autism Stories, where we connect you with amazing people that help autistic adults and teens become more successful. I'm your host, Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. We all need community, and one of the most common ways we develop community is by sharing a meal together. However, when you're autistic, that is easier said than done for many reasons. One of those reasons is eating disorders. A recent study reported that eating disorders affect almost 20% of those on the spectrum. On this episode of Autism Stories, we talk with occupational therapist Kim Clary about why this happens and what can be done to support autistic people with eating disorders. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Kim, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I wanted to start off by learning where does your story in the autism community begin? Um, I think it began when I was diagnosed. I was diagnosed at age 24. And I mean, that's when I first started interacting with others who were diagnosed with autism. I read where... You said it was very difficult to trust service providers because most of them were not knowledgeable about autistic people. When reading about this, you, I saw where you mentioned that a few of the providers um, were willing to sit on the floor with you to learn about how your autism affects you. Can you explain why this was so important to you? Many of these providers that sat on the floor with me, they knew very little to nothing about autism. But they came into my world without judgment, without expectation, without agendas of what I should be doing or saying. They listened to my ways of communicating, accepted me, and didn't try to fix me, tell me I was wrong, or that I was hearing something I wasn't. They let me know that it was okay to be me, that I was not broken or defective. They became my allies to let me know that I was just as valuable of a person as everyone else. And that my differences are yet challenging sometimes, but that is okay, because together we can figure things out. They also let me know that it is okay to do what I need to do to participate in the present. So these providers, they're really, when I say sit on the floor with me, that so during uh, therapy sessions, I always sit on the floor because I don't like sitting in chairs. And um, some of the providers would sit down with me on the floor um, instead of sitting in you know, their own chairs and being above me. And they really tried to come into my world and to understand me. And that made a big difference. It helped me to not only trust them, but they just came into my world without expecting me to come into theirs. Currently, you're an occupational therapist. How important was your experience with service providers related to your desire to become an OT? As far as my experiences um, with them, for my desire to be an OT, I don't know if they really had a big impact on that. So I was in college um, and 
be an occupational therapist when my eating disorder started. And I think maybe a, a better question is how did my ADHD, and at that time, undiagnosed autism affect my desire to be an OT. So growing up, I had so many problems with learning um, and socializing and communicating that I, I worked really, really hard. And I, I was drawn to people who were different like me. I was drawn to people who needed help. Um, I knew that I had the patience and the understanding and the creativity to help other people who were different. So I think that my experiences and my challenges growing up, that led to my desire to be an OT. But my desire to do public speaking, on the other hand, um, and to educate service providers and educators, um, my desire to do that is based on my, my really poor experiences within the healthcare system when I was going in and out of treatment centers for my eating disorder. Thinking about your eating disorder and the connection for many people that are autistic, what do you think are the misconceptions about this, these disorders? Um, I think with, with, oh gosh, so much. Um, a lot of people assume that with eating disorders such as anorexia nervosa, where there's... Um, a refusal to eat or a lot of restriction of food intake, um, they, they assume that you have to be really, really emaciated to have anorexia, and that's just not true. Um, you can't, especially those people who are older, older individuals, um, their bodies don't look the same as younger individuals, and they can be starving themselves, they can be malnourished, but not look like um, a skeleton for lack of a better word. I also think that there's a lot of misconceptions about eating disorders being about food, um, or just about food and weight and appearance. That's not um, usually what it's really about. I also hear a lot of people talk about eating disorders as being about control. For some people it might be, but for others, that's, that's not the case. They... They happen for all, all sorts of reasons. For me, which is sort of my eating disorder, my, my autism played into it, where my special interest in college was soccer. Uh, I was on a scholarship, and um, I practiced after practice, and um, I talked about soccer all the time. All that I did, or all that I wanted to do. Our coach gave us a diet to follow, and I took it very literally and very to the extreme because I wanted to be the best player I could. So I eliminated a lot of food. And then also at that time, I was learning in my health class about how cardio exercise is a certain, your heart rate has to be a certain amount for 12 consecutive minutes. And if it's not that, then it's not counted as cardio and that you need at least 30 to 60 minutes of cardio so many times a week. And I took that so literally that I would time my heart rate. And because of my autism, because of my some of my interoceptive difficulties, my body doesn't regulate my heart rate to change. And I ended up working out way, way too much, and my weight started to drop. 
And for me, being malnourished is what triggered the eating disorder. It's what triggered thoughts about weight. It triggered the fear of eating. So for some people, it can start off as a self-esteem problem, and so then they start restricting. Or for other people, it might, like for me, it was because my weight dropped too low, and that in itself triggered an eating disorder. And then you also have, like, binge eating disorder, and there are misconceptions with that one, too, where those people have to be really obese to have a binge eating disorder, and that's not the case either. I don't know the specifics, but I do know eating disorders are, are on the rise, and I do know that um, eating disorders are the deadliest mental illness, but it has, has you know, the greatest mortality rate associated with the disorder itself. They're really serious. And having autism and eating disorder um, compounds things a lot. I think people sometimes get confused between between eating and feeding disorders. Can you share what the difference between the two disorders are? Yeah, so eating disorders have the, the psychological component to it where there are um, body distortions, and at least with, with anorexia and, and sometimes bulimia as well, there's there, the, the body distortions, um, and there is a preoccupation with Feeding disorders like uh, ARFID, those are, there's, there's three, not three types, but three main reasons why people can develop ARFID. So one is on sensory issues. So if a person, the texture um, of something might be really hard for the person to handle. Or like for me, I don't have ARFID, but I do have sensory issues related to eating, but for me, sometimes like the noise of people chewing really hurts my ears, and sometimes a noise and too much bright light will make me feel nauseous and not want to eat. So for some people with ARFID, those are to the extreme where it affects their their caloric intake to an extreme amount. Other people with ARFID might have a traumatic experience, and so then they develop um, more of like a kind of the PTSD, the lack of a better word, with food. And then the other other type is they, they just might not have that hunger drive in them. How common is it for someone with an eating disorder to also have a feeding disorder? I don't know the actual um, statistics for that, but I do know that people with autism are, I, I would think that they are more at risk for a feeding disorder because of sensory issues, because of interoceptive challenges, and because of they're the higher risk for food-related traumatic experiences due to GI issues or allergies or oral motor function dysfunction. So I didn't talk about that in the previous question, but with oral motor, if a person, their, their mouth and their oral motor ability, if it hasn't developed correctly, they might feel when they're eating, they might feel as if they're gagging or if they're choking. So at very, you know, in infancy, if the parent is trying to force that child to continue to eat, it eventually becomes a very traumatic experience because the child is always feeling 
like they're choking because there's poor motor issues aren't being addressed. And people with autism are more susceptible um, than the general population to have those kinds of difficulties. Now, you mentioned interoception, the body's ability to pick up signals, and one of those signals is, is hunger. How much is interoception related to eating disorders? A lot. <laughs> interoception is related, I think, interoception plays a part in a lot of different mental illnesses. It's not just a, a concept that's important for those with autism. It's important for everybody to be aware of. Interoception, when you have an eating disorder where you're starving yourself, for example, your hunger cues get all out of whack. They might have been out of whack before your eating disorder began. They may not have been, but they surely are going to be out of whack once the eating disorder is in full swing. And actually, I think it's, it's also compounded because when you don't, when you're restricting your calories and you're restricting food or you're throwing up, you're not, your body, and when you try to have food in your stomach, it feels like it's way too much because you get used to it not in there, I don't know how to really describe it, but your interceptive signals get really screwy when you're when you have an eating disorder. The thing is, when you have an eating disorder and you start to recover, after a while, you can relearn those signals. When you have autism or some some other disorder that affects your interception and from the start. The recovery is different. So, like, with me, there are certain things that are worse when I'm in an eating disorder state. And if I didn't have autism, they would kind of dissolve once I got into recovery. Because I do have autism, those issues are still there. They're not as profound as when I was in the eating disorder. The intersection also, the just hunger and fullness also the, the emotion and, and you sorry I'm, I'm trying to think about okay so when one of the things I did in my eating disorder is I grew up a lot and part of my purging was due to anxiety from food but sometimes um, I, I learned that I was doing it because of overstimulation and it was actually providing a calming effect to me, and it was also becoming like a stunning behavior. And I had to, I had to learn how to recognize um, my body signals and when I was wanting to throw up due to anxiety because I had eaten something versus due to there's too much noise and my brain's shutting down because I'm overstimulated. Um, I had to really learn how to differentiate because depending on which one it is, it's going to guide my actions. So if it was because of anxiety, then I would do things like uh, a pros and cons list of growing up. Um, or I would, I would do a lot of cognitive behavioral type um, strategies. If it was because of overstimulation, I would pass to a sensory strategy. Um, and that took me a really long time to figure out and to really master being able to not only identify, but also carry out the next right action. 
for autistic people that don't have eating disorders, there's often sensory sensitivities and executive functioning challenges. How do these come into play when we're talking about eating? I've worked and spoken with people, autistic adults, who they, their sensory issues with, with eating uh, cause them a really poor diet, which can, they remind me of, of a child's diet, uh, some of them. So the french fries and chicken nuggets, and it has to be for McDonald's or something like that. And it could be a sensory thing. It could also be a routine thing where they just need that uh, consistency, and so that's what they do. But that can cause a whole host of, of health issues. You know, their cholesterol, blood pressure, uh, blood sugar, um, all of that stuff. Um, on the other end, some people might restrict their... Actually, not on the other end, but just um, even those same people, they're going to lack the vitamins and minerals that their body needs. Also, so like for me, when I was working as an OT in the nursing home, I, during lunch, I was too overstimulated to um, eat lunch. I needed to go for a walk outside and re-regulate myself. Um, I couldn't think about eating because, to me, the most important thing was to get my brain working. Um, if I'm not regulated, I can't eat. And so that's another um, another factor. And then also, again, with me, some of the things that happened was I am very I'm hyperactive. I need a lot of proprioception and vestibular input. So I need a lot of movement and pressure. And I can also get stuck doing um, emotions and be unable to break away. So I might, sometimes I would be working out for you know, six, seven hours per day, and obviously I can't keep up with the calories to be healthy with that. That can also, those sensory aspects can also play into eating or nutrition. As far as the executive functioning, I have a hard time with my executive functioning when it comes to eating, and that has led me to really restrict the types of food or the meals that I make. It's hard for me to put together a recipe. And when I'm overstimulated, it's even more hard. And so putting together a three-step meal, which could be like a sandwich, might be too, too hard for me to do on some days. And I've had to learn to once. Once about every two weeks, I cook enough for two weeks worth of food, and I stick it in the freezer, and then that way, when I am overstimulated, when my executive functioning is being problematic, I can I can go to that. I can't use um, those things as an excuse to not uh, feed myself properly. If someone does have an eating disorder, what are some of the first steps you would suggest in taking to keep to to get the support they need? I'm going to I want to answer that question, but before that, um, I that kind of triggered another question that I, I want to bring up or point um, identifying people who who 
uh, might have eating disorders or are at risk. Um, there was a, so my husband and I sometimes um, teach a group of young adults um, in, in a work program, and we teach them about the sensory system, um, the sensory processing. And I remember um, this one group that we were teaching, there was a young lady in there, and she was fixating so much on the food labels and how much sugar was in everything. And she started doing that fixation because the previous week they had brought in a nutritionist in that program and they had discussed um, food and what's healthy, what's not healthy. And so this young lady with autism really took a hold of that and started just obsessing about it. And I could see that a beginning of an eating disorder starting with her. Um, so you have to be really careful when you are teaching nutrition and healthy habits to people with, with, with autism. You want to give them the correct information, but you also want to make sure that things aren't taken so literally that their thinking is so black and white that it becomes an issue. Opening up to somebody whom you trust. Eating disorders are really, really hard. Um, a lot of people with eating disorders, there comes a lot of shame, a lot of self-hatred, a lot of really tough feelings. Um, a lot of people are in denial. And I, I think it's just really important that if you think that you might be struggling with an eating disorder, to really find somebody whom you trust, open up to them first. Um, that's really the first step is to bring it out into the open and talk to somebody else about it. I really like the Ziggurat model, which is by um, Ruth Aspie and Barry Grossman. And it's... It, in my recovery, I had known about this to grow up model, but that was really one of the keys is I ended up structuring my own recovery based on their model, even though I didn't know I was doing that. Um, and I, I really think that they have a really good outline on how to um, how to intervene when you're when you need to work on. Uh, when you need to work on replacing negative behaviors and working through um, working through emotions and fears and sensory issues, it's, it's vital to keep in mind what is autism and what is eating disorders. And I think that their model really helps can help a provider help an individual um, distinguish that. And how can an OT be beneficial in supporting someone who has an eating disorder? Oh gosh, OTs can be very beneficial. Um, well, OTs can be very beneficial. Problem is there there's a lack of OTs within mental health. There's even more of a lack of OTs in working with adults with autism or eating disorders. Um, that there's a gap. And I'm hoping that that will change and bringing awareness will help do that. Um, the OTs, we have the, the knowledge and the skill set to, to help, to 
holistic treatment team and help the individual with the eating disorder figure out what's autism, what's sensory, what's eating disorder. Um, we also are experts at um, task analysis and breaking down um, a task and figuring out where, where the problem is happening. Because if you really think about it, sitting down to eat a meal, there's so much involved just doing that. And that could be hindering the person's ability to do it. Um, it's not just, you know, anxiety. And, and I think OTs are, are educated to be able to yeah, break down the different tasks. Um, I also think that occupational therapists were very, very client-driven, client occupation-driven. So our goal is to help you or help a person um, be able to do what's meaningful to them. And I think that OTs, we, I was talking to an, a, an OT who is wanting to actually go into helping those with eating disorders. Um, and we were discussing you know, different ways that um, OTs could, could benefit that population. And I mean, it's things like going to the grocery store with a person and helping them to manage, you know, the sensory issues that can happen in a grocery store, and then also manage, you know, how to navigate the store, um, how to figure out what foods to get, how to work through some of those anxieties while you're there. I think you are someone that's helping to kind of fill that gap um, with your knowledge and expertise. And, and for those that want to get in contact with you and learn more about what you do, how would they go about doing so? They can go on to my website, which is www.kimclary.com. You can also email me at kjcl. U-T-Y at gmail.com and I really love answering people's questions um, so if you do email me then I will definitely try my, my very best to, to get back to you as soon well I will get back to you as soon as I can and if I don't if you don't hear back from me um, try emailing me again because sometimes no email that goes into your trunk now. Oh, Kim, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks so much for talking with me today. Thank you for, for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode, and thank you to Kim for the conversation. I say over and over again that we all need community. When you don't have community, you become much more isolated, which brings about an increase in depression and anxiety. Autism Personal Coach supports adults and teens to develop community by empowering them to pursue their passions. We will help you find your tribe. To get an autism coach for a loved one or yourself, email doug.bletcher at autismpersonalcoach.com or call or text 216-336-5889 and request a coach today. On the next episode of Autism Stories, we will talk with Rebecca Cavender about the benefits for autistic people in using their intuition. 
Talk to you then. Conversation issues. Keeping it short. Even with practice. I'm sure